saw The Patriot this week and a movie about a guy who struggles about his involvement in the American Revolution. I was really struck, I guess, in a new way to think about the personal sacrifices that were given so that the freedom that you and I enjoy, we can enjoy. And so uh, it was kind of an eye-opener for me. In a little more non-fiction way, though, you might remember Nathan Hale. He's the guy who uh, uh, was the hero, a hero in the American Revolution, was hung as a spy during the dark days of the Revolution, and he is most well-known for his last words before he was killed, which were, of course, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. His grandnephew, Edward Everett Hale, is the man that wrote that classic American patriotic story called The Man Without a Country. And in it is the story of a guy named Philip Nolan, who was unjustly court-martialed for being involved in an uprising that wasn't, he wasn't aware of that he was involved in it until it was too late. And he was so angry that at his court-martial, he told the court that he never wanted to see the American flag again. And he actually came to regret that statement and became quite a patriot, but the court nevertheless told him, if that's what you want, then that's what you get. And they, sh- they essentially shuttled him from American ship to American ship. He never was on American soil again and uh, never saw the American flag again. Well, this is a, a, a fictitious story, and hence it's called The Man Without a Country because he never was allowed again to come to his country. I thought about that in relation to the life of one who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and how the, you could swing to the far other extreme, that one who is a believer in the Lord Jesus, you might say, uh, could be a man with two countries. That is, he has a loyalty not only to his nation, for us citizens of the United States of America, but also for those of us who are U.S. citizens and believers in Jesus Christ, we are also citizens of a heavenly country in a very real sense. We are citizens of two different countries. And a lot of the problems that we experience in this life come to the forefront when we experience conflict between these two countries' different priorities. And so as we continue in our series in First Peter, Peter comes to the, the point now where he begins to talk about some very practical things today in which and in, in the, in the culture, the country in which we live, as we are in two different citizens of two different countries. So let's look together in First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two, and let's talk a little bit about what we do when we are citizens of a temporary physical nation, and we are also citizens of an eternal spiritual nation or country that is heaven. And those two worlds collide and come into conflict. How are we to live? How are we to live in a world or a country that doesn't give a hang about our spiritual citizenship and instead is focusing on their priorities and their priorities alone, as we saw in the Air Force One uh, film clip? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11. Peter picks up the same theme of talking to believers who are struggling to live out their faith in difficult times. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation, meaning when the day the Lord comes. A couple of years ago, I read about a, um, a new law or a new privilege that was being given to some Hispanics. Actually, I guess it's okay to call them Mexicans because they're from Mexico. But they actually could apply for dual citizenship of both being citizens of Mexico and of the United States. And they talked about all the benefits of this dual citizenship. They also talked about all the, the trouble that they got every time they tried to cross the border. And the people on the border would give them problems about where they were loyal, to which country are you really loyal, saying you're trying to get the best of both worlds, you're really not loyal to any country. And so you think about that in relation to those of us who are like a Christian man with two countries. You've got that conflict of loyalty there. Peter gives us a great perspective here that says, yes, while indeed you are citizens of, for them, the Roman Empire, for us, the United States, remember, as believers in Jesus, there is a, an additional country to which you are citizens. He says, you need to remember that you are aliens and strangers in this world. It's only temporary. But what's permanent is heaven. And so you are to abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Obviously, the earthly priorities. He says you're to abstain from those things. The word that he uses here for abstain literally means to hold oneself constantly back from. You get the idea of riding a horse you know, that's headed for the barn. Have you ever done that? You get turned around and you're headed for the barn. I mean, you could pull those reins and tie them to the saddle horn and that horse is going to run sideways and do all he can to get there. That's what our fleshly lusts are like in, in our bodies, in this world that encourages that. It's like riding a horse headed for the barn. And you've got to constantly be pulling on those reins to keep it in check. That's the idea of the word abstain. It is a continual action on the part of any believer in the world in which we live to abstain from those fleshly lusts because they wage war against your soul. You know, we so often look at the problems that we have in our lives and we, you know, we, we look for physical solutions or earthly solutions. And essentially, the problems we have, as Paul says in Ephesians, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not just a physical problem, but it's a spiritual problem. That our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the spiritual powers in the heavenly places. It's against, essentially, Satan and his demons is what he means. And so to win in that war, the spiritual war, Peter tells us, remember that your citizenship is in heaven. You are aliens and strangers. This is all temporary. So abstain from those fleshly lusts. And what's the purpose? Not only to wage war against your own soul, or for the benefit of your own soul, but also that when you go out and you're with other people, that your behavior is excellent. So that as they slander you as evildoers, you're not really evildoers. And they will, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. The thought there, I think, is that uh, they will observe your good deeds and they're going to place their faith in Jesus and will glorify God when Jesus comes as a result of the way that you live. But I want you to not overlook the order in which Peter gives this. First he says, work on you. Then he says, work on the world. 
So essentially, he says this, that excellent behavior in the world begins with excellent behavior in the heart. Before you're going to impact the world, before you're going to let God impact the world, you're going to have to let God impact you. So he says, begin by pulling on those reins, by abstaining from the fleshly lust, then take that excellent behavior to the unbelievers so that they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. One little girl prayed one time. It's kind of cute and sad at the same time. Lord, make all the bad people good. Make all the good people nice. Excellent behavior in the world begins with excellent behavior in the heart. And now as we continue, Peter's going to give us a couple of very relevant ways to apply that excellent behavior. First of all, he does it kind of in a wide sense in the nation in which we live. He says in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Submit to the government or submit to the political authorities is what he's saying. Back in 1209, if you're a history buff or if you happen to have a far side calendar, either one will do. If, because I saw it on the far side calendar. In 1209, uh, AD 1209, there was a, uh, the, uh, the French, had, French army had defeated the town of Béziers, as pronounced, and they were faced with the dilemma of how to tell the pagans apart from the Christians which ones to kill. And you may be aware that Simon of Montfort came up with a very creative solution. He says, kill them all, for the Lord will know his own. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not just a joke. I mean, that really happened. An incredible slaughter. Is that the kind of government that we're to submit to? Of course, in the 20th century, we've got the much more popular uh, finger to point to Hitler or to Stalin or to some other kind of a tyrant. And yet we have here in the Bible, submit yourselves to every human institution. Is that what the Bible's talking about? You know, if, if the government all of a sudden rises up and says that we need to totally exterminate a race of mankind. Not at all. Because remember, we are citizens of two different worlds. And when our earthly citizenship tells us or creates a law that tells us we need to rebel against our heavenly citizenship, we are to do just the opposite because we are, as Peter says, ultimately aliens and strangers in this world. And we are permanently uh, residences or citizens of heaven. And so where, what do we do when that conflict happens? Well, you do what many did during that time and you rebel against the government in favor of serving the Lord. When, God, when man's laws require you to sin, you rebel against man's laws. But what if man's laws don't require us to sin? Which is really our case here in the United States. I can't think of any law that forces us to sin. And uh, I know that there are many laws that allow us to, many laws that will let us get away with sin, uh, some terrible sins let us get away with. But nothing requires us to that I'm aware of anyway. Maybe there is, I'm just unaware of it. But by and large here in America, our problem isn't a Hitler. Our problem is struggling with respecting, for example, uh, a king. We don't have kings. We have a president that has kind of a, a shady moral past. We have trouble recently, the last couple of weeks, 
I know personally respecting a governor like over in Vermont who signs legislation to allow the homosexuals to have the same kind of, uh, of uh, legal rights, justifying it through civil unions. We struggle in a culture that makes it illegal to kill an eagle egg and yet at the same time legal to kill an unborn child. In such a culture, are we to submit to the government? Yes, we are. Because while they allow sin, <laughs> while they allow sin, they don't require it. And so not requiring it, we still are to submit and to respect the government. In the Old Testament, you've got the example in the book of Daniel where he says, The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, bestows on it whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's per personally comforting to me. But the Bible itself says that God's in total control. There's not one leader that leads that is not uh, sovereignly selected by God. In fact, he chooses the lowliest of men to perform that function. This is why in the Old Testament you can have a Nebuchadnezzar who's called by God my servant. You can have a nation, a wicked nation of Assyria that says he is my rod of anger. Cyrus, an unbelieving king, God calls him my anointed. All the government that is set up is government set up by God, used for his purposes. And Peter gives us, has given us here these verses we just read, a couple of practical reasons why we should submit to the government as long as the government doesn't require us to sin. And the first is in verse 14, which we just read, governor sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. In other words, fear. That's a great motivator to keep uh, the speed limit where it's supposed to be. The fear of what will happen as a result of breaking the law. In fact, I think this did happen. <laughs> Yesterday at the baptism, one of our staff was stopped by a cop uh, because we're going just a little too fast down the 30 mile an hour roadway. I won't mention any names because I don't want to embarrass Richard Moore. <laughs> Bless his heart. And he's the guy that's driving your children to New Mexico right now. <laughs> so that's a very practical reason that Peter gives us. The governors are sent for the punishment of evildoers. Those DCC staff, you got to get them. Punishment of evildoers. And also the praise of those who do right. You don't see it very often. But every now and again you'll read about Governor Bush uh, holding some ceremony. I remember last year him honoring some war veterans. The praising of those who do nobly and the punishing of those who, who uh, break the laws. So there's a couple of very practical reasons why to uh, obey the government. But we're not limited to our motivation in this sphere. Remember we are, a Christian you might say, is a man with two countries. Not just this world but also another there's actually a higher and more noble, and really for many of us as believers in Jesus Christ, a more basic reason why we should do what's right and obey the laws of the land. It's not because we're afraid we're going to get a ticket or because we're, we want to be uh, acclaimed in front of men. Those are pretty selfish motives. There's a higher motive. Peter told us in verse 13, he said, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. The motivation goes a whole lot deeper than just what's going to happen to you. The motivation to obey, even when it doesn't, we, wouldn't, we don't agree with it, or even when our leaders are wrong immorally. 
Why should we still respect them and obey the laws that they give as long as they don't require us to sin? Our motivation ultimately is for the Lord's sake. And that's why. And there's a benefit for doing this. Verse 15, we're told, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. There is nothing that speaks louder to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ than a Christian who lives a godly life. There is nothing that does more to defame the gospel of Jesus Christ than a Christian who lives an ungodly life. Peter says that if you, it is the will of God that by doing right that you silence the ignorance of foolish men. And the implication is we do wrong, we confirm the ignorance of foolish men. He continues, verse 16. He says, Act as free men. And do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Basically, our relationship here with all men is given. All the men in which, all the people with whom we live. And you remember back in our series on anger, we talked about the issue of choices, and we said that you need to realize, first of all, that you are totally free to make any kind of a choice you want to make. Uh, and that's a biblical statement. When we went back to Genesis and saw where God told Adam, you're totally free, eat from any tree that you want to eat from, but just know that if you eat from the tree I say don't eat from, you'll die. You're free to make any decision, but you're not free from the consequences of it. And so Peter says, realize, you're free, act as free men. But he says, but don't use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. You've got the choice, but don't choose evil. That's a bad choice. Choose instead to be a servant of God. And as a servant of God, how are you to treat others? First of all, you honor all men. This is the idea of uh, believers and unbelievers alike, all people, every human being. To honor them has, has the idea of it to give them value made in the image of God. And then he narrows it a little more. He says, love the brotherhood. This isn't like what we talked about last week, the, the Philadelphia feel-good love of, oh boy, how you doing? Glad to see you. This is the love of sacrifice. This is the agape, sacrificial love. Fear God, he says in the next one. This isn't terror, this is respect. Honor the king. Again, a position, not necessarily a person. Uh, Regardless of what you think of Clinton, you should respect the man because he's our president, regardless of his private life. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not getting into any politics, I'm just saying his position demands our respect because he's our president. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. A practical way we can help live out what we're told to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles, first of all, regarding the government. And second of all, he gets into something a little more closer to home. And I love how this passage, and we're going to see the next couple of weeks too, is like a funnel. He starts big. You know, it's real easy to honor somebody if you don't know them. It's, it's pretty easy to give lip service to respecting our governmental officials because probably not very many of us know very many of them. And so it's easy to, to give lip service to respect. But now when we get into uh, the issue of employer-employee, now it gets a little closer to home, 
and next week and the week following, it literally goes home as we're talking about the, the kind of relationship that we're to have between husband and wife. So we go from real wide in our nation, our culture, our government, gets a little more narrow now as we're about to talk about your workplace. And in the next couple of weeks, it gets even narrower as you talk about your home. He says in verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, obviously, uh, none of us are slaves or servants. And so when we come to a passage like this, you don't just skip over it. And when you come to something that's no longer relevant for our culture, how do you apply that portion of text to your life? Well, what you need to always do when you're trying to interpret the Bible is to find out what did it mean in the original context. Then you want to take the timeless principle from that. If you were to take that timeless principle and apply it in Peter's context, it would be servants and masters. If you take that timeless principle and apply it in our context, it's employee-employer. And he says... For those whom you work, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. It's easy to do that to those who are good and gentle. Peter says also do it to those who are unreasonable. Or as the NIV says, harsh. That word is from a word, uh, uh, it's the word scolios. We get our word scoliosis from it, the medical term, scoliosis. has a crooked back. And that's a great picture for an unreasonable boss. And literally, Peter's calling him crooked. If you've got a crooked boss, even then, Peter says, you're to still be respectful and you're still to do what he says. But there are exceptions. And, of course, the great exception when you want to talk about a, uh, a uh, crooked boss is to look at Dilbert. So let's look. The boss tells Dilbert, I cut your budget in half. He says, how can I do a tech technology, you got it, installation without an adequate budget. He says, try being unethical with our vendors. What? He says, it's easy. Tell them we might make a huge purchase later if they give us a bunch of free stuff now. And as he's pushing him out the door, he says, if it makes you feel better, wait until they lie first. That's a crooked boss. Okay. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you have got somebody like that that uh, forces you or encourages you or whatnot to make un unethical steps in your job. Again, as we talked about government and the Hitlers of the world, of the government that take their authority way too far and require you to sin, and you're not to do that because you're a man with two countries, not just this, not just earthly, but heavenly. No, you rebel against that human authority that tells you to rebel against God. The same is true here in the workplace. If your boss requires you to lie and you lose your job if you don't lie, then you know what? Maybe you need a different job. Because as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, lying is not an option. Or are any other unethical practices in the workplace. Because how is anybody ever going to see the Lord Jesus Christ in your life if you're just like everybody else going with the flow. Peter says, Be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, that's easy, but also to those who are harsh. Why, Peter? Why in the world would I want to do that? Assuming they're not calling me to, 
to sin, assuming it's just harshness and unreasonableness in the workplace, why in the world are you telling me to be respectful to somebody like that? He goes on and tells us why in verse 19. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. And then notice this logic here, verse 20. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. It says if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing what's right. Don't suffer because you did something wrong and you're getting punished for it. It says if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing what's right. Because there's no credit, he says, to do otherwise. God is not pleased with suffering per se, okay? But he is pleased with patience and obedience, even if suffering is what's required. That is what Peter is teaching here. You have been called for this purpose, Peter tells us, verse 21. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." Why should you be submissive to an unreasonable boss? Peter's given us two reasons. One, it finds favor with God, that you will honor him in an unjust circumstance. And two, as we just read, because that's what Jesus Christ did. He suffered injustice to please his heavenly Father. We are to follow the example of Jesus. You know, I think it's interesting. You, you, when you go to uh, Christian bookstores, you see all kinds of plaques. You know, the Lord is our peace. All this stuff that makes you feel great. Wouldn't it be great to see a plaque on the wall that says, verse 21, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. <laughs> no way. You're not going to see that, because that's not a popular teaching today, that it might possibly be God's will for you to suffer. When here clearly in the text it tells us that if suffering is what is required for you to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you suffer to the glory of God. Because that's exactly what Christ did, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. It's great. The word example there is a word that literally means to write under or to write on something. It's the idea of you have Jesus here as the model, and then you stick the paper of your life on top of it and you trace it. And then you, when you hold your paper up, who is it that people see? They see Jesus, because Jesus has been traced onto your life. It's the, example, it's the idea of the example. You see, you are the example of Jesus, who is our example. Peter is essentially telling us that our excellent behavior in the world, even when treated unjustly, pleases Christ, who also suffered unjustly. The Apostle Paul himself wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus will be persecuted. All 
who desire to live godly in Jesus will be persecuted. Why did Jesus deal with this kind of injustice? Because, as we read, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Try this tomorrow morning when you are in an unjust circumstance, when you're treated like dirt, when you're given somebody else's workload, when you are essentially working for the federal government to pay your taxes, when you are so burdened within, you might say, an unjust circumstance. How are you to act? Our example, Peter says, is Jesus. And let me quote what Peter says. Think about it tomorrow morning in your work situation. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And here we go. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. So where's the consolation then? You just be a doormat? No. What did Jesus do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Because he knows, this guy's not ultimately my boss. God is. And I'm entrusting myself to him. Remember, why are we to submit to the government, even though they may be shady morally? Not for them. For the Lord's sake. We read in verse 13. Same thing down here. Verse 22. Uh, verse 23. Why did Jesus do it? He kept entrusting himself to the, to the one who judges righteously. Again, for the Lord's sake. Our motivation to live in unjust circumstances isn't just for the here and now. It's for the Lord's sake. Because we know that the one who judges righteously will all make it right in the end. In the last two verses, Peter tells us why the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who could have destroyed all his enemies with a word, patiently endured the injustice. It's because, as Peter says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You're not speaking here of physical healing. By his wounds you're healed. That's not the context. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Ultimately, we are entrusting ourselves to eternity, to the judge who judges righteously. I loved reading last month in a newspaper a court case that happened over in Virginia. There was a deaf couple that after recently getting married, their benefits, their disability benefits, were cut basically in half as a result of that. And uh, they fell behind, therefore, on their $630 a month rent. Well, what did their compassionate landlord do but take them to court and sue them in order to evict them? The judge of the case was so uh, overwhelmed with sympathy for this couple, that he himself stood up, (laughs) pulled out his wallet, and handed the money to this attorney. And I'll quote the judge. He said, consider it paid. And that's great, but that's not all of it. 
The Washington Post reported that four other attorneys that were present for other cases waiting their turn were so moved by what the judge did that those attorneys stood up and also gave this couple more money. Talk about conversion. All right? That's great. But the parallel is obvious, isn't it? For us. That we are disabled in the sense that we are flawed with our sin nature. And that we have a debt that we cannot pay. We stand before the judge who in all, uh, all rights could condemn us, but instead he himself pays it for us. And not only that, you take that illustration further, the motivation of the grace that is shown there motivates other people now to start doing the same thing, which is exactly what Peter is saying. The whole reason Jesus bore, his, bore our sins in his body on the cross is that we might die to sin also and live to righteousness. The motivation of his example of grace gives us now a motivation to die to self and to live for righteousness, which fits right back into the context of what we're talking about a man with two countries, one spiritual, one earthly and physical. What do we do when they conflict? We first of all focus on our excellent behavior in the world, knowing it begins with excellent behavior in our heart. We abstain from the fleshly lusts. And how do we deal with the injustice, both in the government and in our workplace? And incidentally, ladies, as we begin to look next week into dealing with husbands that don't obey the Word of God, how do you deal with it as well? It all flows from the same idea. To whom are you entrusting yourself? Not the here and now, but ultimately to the Lord. Ultimately to the Lord. Because our excellent behavior in the world, even when we're treated unjustly, pleases our Christ who also suffered unjustly. Well, let's bow together and let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again today that the Scripture is not just an archaic book with some sayings that we can't understand, that we gather around and read as a religious duty. But you've given it to us to be the guide it is intended to be as a light to our path, as what we are to cling to in this world until, as Peter says, uh, until the morning dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts until Jesus comes. We cling to the Word of God. And so, Lord, as we struggle with our citizenship in two different countries, one heavenly, one earthly, and the earthly is such a strong tug at our hearts, like a horse headed for the barn, I pray that you'd strengthen us today to abstain from the fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul, and we might keep our behavior excellent in the world in which we live, that they might glorify you the day that you come. And in that excellent behavior, God, for our government, help us to be good citizens, that we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would be the model citizen in the United States of America. I pray also we would be model employees in spite of crooked bosses, in spite of perhaps unreasonable demands. And our motivation for doing this would be because we know that you ultimately are the righteous judge. So strengthen us, Lord, for this purpose, we pray. In Jesus' name.